Hi everyone, this is Dr. Gayla. Welcome to your Health Connection. It's great to be with you. This podcast is designed to give you natural solutions to your health problems based upon my 35 years of experience as a functional medicine practitioner. I love helping individuals experiencing complicated conditions when nothing else has worked. Each week I'll be giving you health tips and strategies that you can implement to improve your health and function at your best. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Hi everyone, this is Dr. Gayla. It's great to be with you. Today we'll be discussing intestinal problems, belly pain, bloating, irritable bowel syndrome, and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, known as SIBO, that's S-I-B-O. This topic is very dear to my heart because I suffered with severe belly pain and bloating starting at the age of two and continuing throughout most of my life. I was very motivated to pursue a career in natural medicine so that I could find the answers for myself and share what I discovered with others. Today we'll take a look at what is normal, what can go wrong, and why it's important to address your gut issues with natural medicine. We will review some case histories so that you can get a clear understanding of how to approach and resolve any problems you may be having in your small intestine. Your small intestine is the longest part of your digestive system. It's about 20 feet long. It connects your stomach to your large intestine and folds many times to fit inside your abdomen. It's located throughout your mid and lower abdomen. Your small intestine does most of the digesting of the foods you eat and has three areas called the duodenum, the ileum, and the jejunum. Your duodenum is the first and shortest section where food passes from your stomach and down into your duodenum. In the second part, called the jejunum, your sugars, proteins, and fats are broken down into small molecules by enzymes that are released by your pancreas and then absorbed into your bloodstream. The ileum is the last part of your small intestine where vitamin B12, bile acids, and other nutrients are absorbed. According to a recent survey, 74% of Americans are suffering with digestive problems. Let's begin by taking a look at why there are so many of us suffering with digestive problems. The lining of your small intestine consists of a single layer of tightly fitted cells called tight junctions. Only tiny particles of nutrients are allowed to pass through these tight junctions. The lining is designed to allow the absorption of your good nutrients into your blood and keep the harmful particles such as undigested food particles, toxins, or bacteria out of your blood. If harmful particles enter your bloodstream, your white blood cells, or your immune system, will react by releasing chemicals to destroy what they consider to be invaders. Uh, Chemicals such as cytokines, histamines, and antibodies will be released. If you do not repair your gut lining, you can develop chronic inflammation. We know that about 95% of the chronic health conditions we see in our practices are due to chronic inflammation. Let's take a look at what can cause the breakdown in the barrier and then explain how that can lead to health problems. Stress is a major factor. Over a million years ago, hunter-gatherers probably only experienced major stress every few days when they were chased down by an animal. Once they reached safety, they probably didn't experience a stress response again for a few days. Our stress exposure today is quite different. 
Many of us are producing the fight or flight hormones, cortisol and adrenaline, up to eight to 10 hours per day. From being in traffic, pressure at work, or being out of work, school problems, family situations, or financial worries. A Gallup poll taken in 2011 revealed that eight in 10 Americans say they frequently encounter stress. Stress can affect every part of your digestive system, says Kenneth Koch, MD. When stress activates the fight-or-flight response in your central nervous system, Dr. Koch says that it can affect your digestive system in the following ways. It can cause your esophagus to go into spasms. It can increase the acidity in your stomach, which can result in indigestion. It can make you feel nauseated, and it can give you constipation or diarrhea. The production of fight-or-flight hormones, adrenaline and cortisol, can also slow the transit time in your small intestine. That's the peristaltic or muscular wave that keeps everything moving through your small intestine and into your colon. Stress can also change the number and the diversity of bacteria in your gut and can encourage the overgrowth of the bad bacteria and deplete your good probiotic bacteria. Stress may weaken the barrier between your small intestine and bloodstream by creating large cracks or holes in the lining of your gut. When this happens, bacteria, toxins, and undigested food particles can go through the open barrier and enter your bloodstream. This can lead to inflammatory reactions throughout your body. I'd like to refer you to a TED Talk given by Robin O'Brien. That's R-O-B-Y-N O'Brien. You can find it on YouTube. Robin is an analyst for the food industry. One morning, her five-year-old child's face started to swell, so she ran to the pediatrician because her face wouldn't stop swelling. The pediatrician told her that this was an allergy reaction from eating foods, foods that she'd had at breakfast that she developed allergy to. Because uh, Robin was an analyst in the food industry, she wanted to do some research and figure out how could food do this to her child. So what she found was that back in 1994, the dairy industry decided that they could increase their uh, profits if they increased their milk production. So they began giving growth hormone to the cows. But unfortunately, because the cows were being milked several hours per day, they, they developed mastitis or infections in their udders. So as a preventative, they decided that they gave, if they gave antibiotics to the cows, they could prevent the infections. But unfortunately now, every time you eat dairy products, if they're conventional and they're not organic, antibiotic-free dairy products, you're getting antibiotics. Another thing that Robin dis, uh, discovered was that in 1996, the genetic modification of grains, soy, corn, and canola oil was introduced, and glyphosates, which are herbicides, were sprayed on crops to exfoliate them before harvesting to make it easier to harvest. Not only have genetically modified foods increased in production the last few years, but these GMO foods have also not been required to be labeled as such until just recently. The increased amount of GMO foods in our food supply has many, left many questioning their impact. While there are still a lot of gaps in our knowledge about genetically modified foods, we're starting to understand more about their production, specifically the use of pesticides and the role that that plays on our gut health. Knowing the importance that gut bacteria play in the overall health of your body 
has allowed us to start to consider the factors that may harm the balance of bacteria in our gut. The science around the use of pesticides and the effect of genetically modified foods on human health is still evolving. Research is just emerging on GMOs and health in general, but preliminary studies have shown a correlation between glyphosates and changes in the gut microbiome. Many believe that symptoms and changes to gut bacterial balance are evolving with long-term consistent exposure to pesticides and glyphosates. Researchers looking at gastrointestinal bacteria in chickens found that when exposed to high levels of glyphosate, the beneficial or good bacteria in the gut were more susceptible to the pesticide and the harmful bacteria were more resistant. So in other words, it, it was destroying the good probiotic bacteria and the harmful bacteria were gaining resistance. So when exposed, glyphosate could be inhibiting the growth of the beneficial bacteria in your gut, which could result in a bacterial imbalance in your intestine. This means that eating foods containing glyphosate could decrease your healthy bacteria and increase the numbers of bad bacteria, putting you at risk for bacterial overgrowth or overgrowth of the bad bacteria. And this is the cause of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. What this means is that bacteria that don't belong in your small intestine move up from your large intestine into your, bacteria, into your small intestine and cause serious problems. We're going to look at an in-depth review of that in just a few minutes. There's evidence suggesting that it may have something to do with the rise in celiac disease and other gluten sensitivities because it's also been shown to lead to intestinal permeability or leaky gut and inflammatory reactions. Here's a list of some of the uh, glyphosate-containing foods. Wheat, barley, buckwheat, millet, rice, oats, rye, corn. So it's always best to eat organic if you're consuming these foods. Here's a list of the foods that contain the highest amount of pesticide residues. So you definitely want to get organic if you're going to eat these foods. And I encourage you to eat these foods because they're healthful foods. Apples, blueberries, strawberries, grapes, cherries, peaches, pears, plums, nectarines, green beans, leafy greens, potatoes, spinach, kale, celery, sweet peppers, tomatoes, and winter squashes. Eating organic reduces pesticide exposure and is linked to a variety of health problems, according to an article published this year in the peer-reviewed journal Nutrients. In four separate clinical trials, people who switched from conventional to organic foods saw a rapid and dramatic reduction in their urinary pesticide concentrations, which is a marker of pesticide exposure. Now let's take a look at the impact of medications on your gut health. Let's take a look at antibiotics. In his book, How the Overuse of Antibiotics is Fueling Our Modern Plagues, Martin J. Blazer, MD, states that livestock are routinely given low doses of antibiotics and that this practice clearly has an effect on our gut microbes. On June 28, 2010, the FDA stated that giving animals antibiotics in order to increase food production is a threat to public health and should be stopped. The federal agency said that it had the power to ban the practice, but it started by issuing draft guidance in hopes that the food industry would make voluntary changes. 
The FDIA guidance policy is based on two principles. One, antibiotics should be given to food animals only to protect their health. And two, all animal use of antibiotics should be overseen by veterinarians. We are seeing the emergence of multi-drug resistant pathogens, according to the FDA Deputy Commissioner Joshua Sharstein, MD. When you take antibiotics for an infection or get them from eating non-organic milk products, conventionally raised meats, poultry, or farmed fish, they can kill both the bad and good bacteria in your gut. In an article titled Antibiotic Resistance, Understanding the Connection to Antibiotic Use in Animals Raised for Food, Mayo Clinic staff wrote, For both humans and animals, misusing and overusing antibiotics can lead to the development and spread of antibiotic-resistant bacteria that may cause untreatable infections. When good bacteria die, bad bacteria, yeast forms, and other pathogens can overgrow, damage the lining of your intestinal walls, which may lead to leaky gut or intestinal permeability. This leads to inflammation and about 95% of the chronic health problems we see in our practices. Let's look at the effects of proton pump inhibitors uh, or acid inhibitors such as Protonix and Prevacid and what that does to your gut health. An article titled Effects of Proton Pump Inhibitors on the Gastrointestinal Microbiota, published on science.direct.com, has shown that proton pump inhibitors alter the balance in the human gut microbiota, increasing the abundance of a species called Firmicutes. These are the bacteria in your gut that have been associated with eating a low-fiber, high-fat diet or a junk food diet. High numbers of Firmicutes have been associated with obesity and have been shown to negatively affect your fat and sugar metabolism and can lead to increased inflammation in your body. The article also stated that proton pump inhibitors or acid inhibitors decrease the abundance of bacteroidetes. These are the bacteria in your gut that increase when you eat a high fiber, wholesome, plant-based diet. These bacteria help to reduce inflammation in your body and have been associated with being lean. Proton pump inhibitors reduce the amount of acid produced in your stomach and ultimately the amount of acid that reaches your small intestine. They actually reduce your stomach acid by about 70% and they're very difficult to wean off from. This causes a significant shift in the pH of your intestine and when this happens, opportunistic or bad bacteria bacteria that can cause infections if your immune system is compromised tended to be more prevalent in the guts of proton pump inhibitor users. As stomach acid becomes less acidic, many ingested microorganisms that would normally be destroyed in your stomach are able to make their way into your small intestine. A 2015 study published in World Journal of Gastroenterology reported a significantly increased percentage of individuals with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth among proton pump inhibitor users. These studies point to the vital importance of sufficient stomach acid for protecting against bacteria getting into your GI tract and for maintaining an intestinal pH that supports your GI tract. Let's look at the consequences of taking the over-the-counter pain medication. These include aspirin, ibuprofen, Aleve, 
They block pain, lower fever, and reduce swelling. This is accomplished by blocking the enzymes that make something called prostaglandin 2s. These are hormone-like substances that cause pain, swelling, and inflammation. Chronic use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs can not only cause stomach and duodenal ulcers, but also have profound effects upon your small intestine. A study published in the journal Gut in October 1998 titled Intestinal Permeability and Inflammation in Patients on Nonsteroidal Anti-Inflammatory Drugs revealed that nonsteroidals injure the delicate lining of your small intestine and cause erosion that leads to perforations and ulcers during drug absorption. This results in increased intestinal permeability, the medical term for leaky gut a condition in which the barrier wall between your small intestine and your blood develops holes, allowing undigested particles of food, toxins, and bacteria to move from or through your small intestine into your blood, and this initiates an inflammatory condition. If you have pain or inflammation, the best way to decrease your levels of prostaglandin 2s that are causing your pain is by changing your diet. It's important to have a healthy balance of omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids in your diet. So you'll need to decrease your intake of the omega-6 fatty acids. These are found in packaged foods, processed oils such as peanut oil, corn, sunflower, and safflower oil, and in conventionally raised meats and dairy products. The omega-6 fats in these foods increase the amount of prostaglandin 2 production that causes pain and inflammation in your body. To decrease pain, you'd want to take an omega-3 EPA DHA supplement and follow an anti-inflammatory diet that consists of 70% vegetables, fresh fruit, organic nuts and seeds, wild-caught fish, and pasture-raised meats. I recommend using olive, avocado, or coconut oil. Let's talk about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or SIBO. SIBO is a disorder in which you have an overgrowth of bacteria in your small intestine. Many of these bacteria are commonly found in your large intestine and are not found in your small intestine. So they literally move up through a small valve called the ileocecal valve between your cecum and your ileum and into your small intestine. When these bacteria settle in your small intestine, they feed on carbohydrates, starches, and sugars, and they produce either methane or hydrogen gas, or both, and this leads to bloating, abdominal distension, pain, constipation, and or diarrhea. Most patients who have SIBO have a flat stomach when they wake up in the morning, and by the end of the day, they look six months pregnant, or their pants become very tight around their waist. SIBO interferes with the digestion of your food and the absorption of your nutrients by damaging the lining of your small intestine, and this leads to leaky gut or intestinal permeability. A leaky gut means that your intestinal lining wall, or that barrier wall, becomes permeable, allowing large molecules of protein and toxins to escape from your small intestine into your blood. If these molecules escape into your blood, your immune system or your white blood cells will respond by creating inflammatory chemicals and antibodies that can lead to food allergies or sensitivities, inflammation, and even autoimmune diseases. 
We'll talk more about leaky gut in a few minutes. After suffering with chronic, severe abdominal pain, horrible bloating, and chronic constipation, starting at the age of two, I finally discovered what to do, and I finally got permanent relief from my symptoms when I learned how to properly diagnose and treat SIBO and leaky gut. Let's look at some of the symptoms of SIBO. Do you have gas, bloating, or di and or diarrhea? Do you get abdominal pain and cramping? Are you constipated? Do you have food intolerances, intolerances such as gluten, casein and milk, lactose and milk, or fructose? Here are some of the risk factors for developing SIBO. Have you taken multiple rounds of antibiotics? Very often it will start, I've had a lot of patients come in and they've been on antibiotics for two or three years, uh, especially teenagers treating acne or after multiple uh, urinary tract infections or sinus infections. Have you been eating a diet high in sugar and refined carbohydrates? You may have low stomach acid. This is the first line of defense against bacteria coming in on your food. Symptoms of low stomach acid are burping, uh, especially burping and a sense of fullness after meals, constipation. Um, have you had recently had bowel surgery or bowel surgery in the past? That was my case. I'd had uh, exploratory surgery on my intestinal tract when I was only two, so you may have developed scar tissue. This can lead to SIBO. Uh, a lot of times SIBO will start after acute gastroenteritis, which is food poisoning. Uh, have you been taking certain medications such as non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, acid inhibitors or proton pump inhibitors, or oral contraceptives? Stress is a major factor that uh, can lead to SIBO. Irritable bowel syndrome, if you had that diagnosis, infections, hypothyroidism is a risk factor, and the migrating motor complex dysfunction. This is the peristaltic wave that keeps everything moving through your small intestine. Let's look at what can cause SIBO. SIBO is usually caused by a movement problem in your small intestine. Every two hours, your small intestine initiates something called a housekeeping wave. This is known as the migrating motor complex. This peristaltic wave sweeps through your small intestine and gets rid of bacteria, residual food particles, and enzymes. If something impairs the wave, your small intestine can't expel these substances and bacteria can multiply in your small intestine. Let's look at some of the factors that can slow down the peristaltic wave that keeps things moving through your small intestine. Damage to the nerves or muscles or scarring due to surgery, food poison inhibitor drugs like Prilosec or Protonix, chronic stress, multiple rounds of antibiotics, or eating a high diet high in sugar, alcohol, and refined carbohydrates. If you have SIBO, the excess bacteria in your small intestine feed on sugar, simple and complex carbohydrates, starches, and alcohol. The bacteria ferment the carbohydrates and produce acids and gases that cause bloating, gas, and inflammation in your digestive tract. The inflammatory reaction injures the lining of your small intestine and the injured cells are not able to completely break down and absorb your food. The bacteria produce enzymes that can also damage your carbohydrate digestive enzymes, and this can lead uh, to decrease in your ability to dig digest your carbohydrates. The undigested carbohydrates become more food for the bacteria, and this keeps the cycle going. 
This leads to a higher level of undigested carbohydrates, feeding the overgrowth of even more bacteria. Here are some signs that you may have SIBO. Your gas and bloating is worse when you take probiotics like lactobacillus or bifidobacteria because these bacteria can overgrow in your small intestine. I'll hold off on until you have killed the pathogenic or bad bacteria. Two, your symptoms are worse when you take or eat prebiotic foods. Prebiotics are types of dietary fiber that feed the friendly bacteria in your large intestine. But if you feed the bad bugs in your small intestine, your symptoms will actually get worse. Prebiotics are really good foods. They're found naturally in foods like beans or legumes, Jerusalem artichokes, onions, bananas, dandelion greens, garlic, onions, asparagus, leeks, apples, and flaxseed. Again, these are really healthful foods, but you may need to avoid these in the beginning if you have SIBO. You may find that taking fiber products or eating foods high in fiber make your symptoms worse because the bacteria also feed on fiber. I want to note that it's very important to consume prebiotics into fiber once your SIBO has been eradicated because these are foods for the good beneficial bacteria in your large intestine and it's important to keep that bacterial balance healthy there. Three is that your blood work shows chronically low iron or ferritin levels with no non known cause. Anemia is known to be one of the first clinical manifestations of SIBO. So if your doctor has told you that you have iron anemia and taking iron isn't working, it could be an absorption problem. All right, let's look at testing and diagnosing of SIBO. A breath test called the lactulose breath test is the gold standard when it comes to SIBO lab testing. It's the most accurate and determines if your SIBO is hydrogen or methane gas dominant. Lactulose is a sugar that humans can't digest so it'll travel through your small intestine and then into your large intestine until it encounters bacteria. Many bacteria break down and utilize lactulose, these are in your large intestine, producing hydrogen and methane as a waste product. Some of the hydrogen and methane is absorbed into your bloodstream, released from your lungs when the gases show up in a breath sample. The test kit is sent to a lab and analyzed for the concentration of hydrogen and methane. You'll need to fast for 12 hours and breathe into a small balloon to measure your baseline levels of hydrogen and methane. You'll then ingest a precise amount of sugar to feed the bacteria and repeat breath samples every 15 minutes for three hours or more to see if the levels of hydrogen and methane increase. If your hydrogen levels are high, then you likely have hydrogen dominant SIBO. This is the type seen most often in patients who suffer with diarrhea. But just because one gas is dominant doesn't mean you don't have only one type. If you have SIBO, you can have high levels of hydrogen, methane, or both in your digestive system. Most patients with IBS have a positive lactulose test that indicates SIBO. A study titled The Impact of Small Intestinal Bacterial Overgrowth on Nutritional Status, published in the July 20, uh, 2003 issue of Practical Gastroenterology, showed that 83% of 101 IBS patients tested positive for SIBO. In a study of children with chronic stomach pain published in Digestive Diseases and Sciences in January of 2010, 
91% of children who were in the study had SIBO. I also recommend doing a comprehensive DNA stool test. This won't directly test for SIBO, but it will pinpoint other causes of your symptoms and can help narrow down the root cause of your problem. Because most of the bacteria associated with SIBO originate from your large intestine, the presence of a high amount of methanobacteria in the stool has been linked to chronic constipation because it's a methane gas produces that produce constipation, as well as some types of SIBO and IBS. If these methane-producing bacteria move into your small bowel, it can lead to SIBO. It's important to do a DNA stool testing because many SIBO patients typically have multiple overlapping gut issues as a result of high levels of dysbiotic or bad bacteria, parasites, yeast overgrowth, a uh, lack of digestive enzymes that break down your foods, lack of immune-protecting antibodies called secretory IgAs. And it's really important to make sure you have high levels of secretory IgAs right now because of the COVID threat. Let's look at treatments. Rifaximin is currently the most commonly used antibiotic for SIBO treatment. Often a combination of rifaximin and another antibiotic called neomycin is recommended. Let's look at the pros and the cons. Some of the cons, antibiotics lack both short-term and long-term efficacy of, of IBS. Antibiotics kill both the good and bad bacteria in your intestine and can lead to an imbalance of gut bacteria. In studies, it was only 41% effective, and there's an almost 60% recurrence rate. It's also very expensive. A 14-day treatment regimen costs between $1,000 and $2,000, and treatment usually requires more than one round of treatment. Because of the high incidence of recurrence with antibiotic treatment, I prefer to identify and fix the underlying root causes, recommend appropriate antimicrobials, and correct all of the underlying conditions by taking the following steps. First, we recommend the proper antimicrobials based upon breath and DNA stool testing. If necessary, we, we rotate different antimicrobials over a three-month period. We supplement hydrochloric acid, pancreatic enzymes, and bile acids if found low through by looking at your symptoms and by DNA stool testing. It's very important to correct your migrating motor complex. That's that peristaltic wave that keeps everything moving through your small intestine. We recommend herbals to correct the peristaltic movement after we kill the pathogens. Many bacteria and other organisms have a protective layer that live in a, what's called a biofilm. So we recommend enzymes to break down the biofilms because many antibiotic-resistant bacteria are hiding out in these biofilms. So it's very, very important to break those down so that the bacteria can then be killed by the antimicrobials. We often recommend colostrum to increase the levels of your secretory immunoglobulin A. That's your immune system. These are antibodies that enhance your immune system's ability to fight infection. And for those who have severe symptoms or who cannot tolerate herbal treatments, we recommend a liquid diet called an elemental diet. Let's take a close look at natural treatments. The first step in treating SIBO is to starve the overgrowth bacteria. These are the bad bacteria that are settling into your small intestine. 
And we do this by removing the foods that feed the bacteria in your small intestine. Foods that feed the bacteria are called FODMAPs, F-O-D-M-A-P-S. These are short-chain carbohydrates and sugar alcohols that are poorly absorbed by your body. The main dietary sources of the four groups of FODMAPs include fructose, so you're going to need to avoid fruits that are high in sugar, oligosaccharides, these include wheat, rye, legumes or beans, and various fruits and vegetables such as garlic and onions. Disaccharides are milk products. Lactose is the main carbohydrate in milk. Monosaccharides Various fruit containing, including figs and mangoes and sweeteners such as honey and agave. Fructose is the main carb. And polyols, certain fruit and vegetables including blackberries and lychee nut, as well as some low-carb or calorie sweeteners like those in sorbitol and mannitol that you find in gums sometimes or candies. I'll go over a short list of the foods high in FODMAPs but for the sake of time, I recommend finding a SIBO-friendly, low-FODMAP diet on Google. If you just type in low-FODMAP diet, you'll find it. Some of the foods high in FODMAPs that you're going to want to uh, not eat include onions, garlic, cauliflower, cassava, and cabbage. These are going to make your gas and bloating worse. And remember, these foods are really helpful for you, so in the future, we will be adding those foods back. You're also going to avoid fruits that, are high, fruits that are high in sugar, beans and lentils, most grains, dairy products, cashews and pistachios, and sweeteners and artificial sweeteners. While working to eliminate SIBO, I recommend that 70% of your plate is filled with non-starchy vegetables. Eat a variety, a rainbow of different colors and different plants. I also recommend eating wild-caught fish, grass-fed meats, healthy fats, and we mentioned avocado oil, uh, olive oil, and coconut oil, and low-sugar fruit like blueberries, kiwi, and pomegranate. The second step is to kill the bacteria. So let's look at some of the antimicrobial herbals. Because of issues with resistance after repeated rounds, and for those not able to clear SIBO with antibiotics, Natural antimicrobial herbals have reported clearance rates of over 50% in those who failed on rifaximin. I recommend antimicrobial herbals to kill off the SIBO bacteria naturally. Herbals aren't as harsh as broad-spectrum prescription antibiotics, which are like a bomb that can wipe out both your good and bad bacteria. I've had tremendous success treating myself and many of my patients by taking a formula containing three herbs this formula was developed by a gastroenterologist named Dr. Kenneth Brown. The formula contains three different herbals. Quebracho extract. This is an anti-inflammatory substance that absorbs gas in your small intestine and helps to starve and weaken the organisms that cause SIBO. The second component is M. balsamia. It contains peppermint leaf and this relaxes and calms your gut helps to relieve intestinal spasms, and it reduces bloating and pain. Conquer tree or horse chestnut exhibits anti-inflammatory and immune-boosting properties, kills bacteria, and can shut off the production of methane. That's one of the gases that can cause constipation. 
A small study conducted by Dr. Brown was published in the Journal of Gastroenterology and Hepatology in September 2015. The results were quite remarkable. The study showed bloating scores improving almost 91%, constipation improved up to 77%, with very few side effects. Results showed that an almost 88% quality of life improvement, bloating improved fivefold, and pain and constipation improved threefold. In clinical studies, over 85% of patients taking two capsules of this combination three times a day for 14 days improved. I was one of them. But I definitely recommend beginning with just one capsule per day. And I recommend to my patients to just take one capsule per day with dinner for about four days and slowly increase to up to six capsules per day and take this in combination for about 10 to 12 uh, weeks. If you have constipation, I also recommend adding magnesium citrate and or a combination of magnesium citrate and magnesium oxide. Probably 80% of Americans are low in magnesium or deficient in magnesium, so it's, uh, it's fine to take magnesium daily. And I also recommend 1,000 or more milligrams of a buffered vitamin C because vitamin C is not only good for your immune system, it also will help if you have constipation. It's very important to eliminate constipation so that toxic waste is not reabsorbed back into your body through your large intestine. My second recommendation to help resolve the constipation caused from intestinal methanogen overgrowth, the new term for SIBO-C, which is SIBO constipation, is intestinal methanogen because it's the methane-producing bacteria that caused constipation, intestinal methanogen overgrowth, or IMO. Allicin, which is the active ingredient in garlic, will reduce methane-producing bacteria and help with constipation. Most people with SIBO do not tolerate garlic, whole garlic well. So taking allicin is the only single-use herb that's been studied with SIBO and was found to be effective for methane-dominant SIBO or IBO, intestinal methanogen overgrowth. You'll need to take 26 or 2700 milligrams per day of allicin, that's A-L-L-I-C-I-N, the active component in garlic. If you have symptoms and your stool test showed high amounts of yeast, my third recommendation would be to add monolaurin. This is lauric acid from coconut. And I recommend taking about 750 milligrams twice per day and increase to tolerance. Again, I probably start out with just one per day and then slowly work your way up. To um, You want to prevent what's called a die-off reaction, uh, which can cause symptoms. You could also take a combination of thyme, oregano, sage, and lemon balm. If you have SIBO with diarrhea, my first recommendation would be to take the combination of the quabrocho, peppermint, and horse chestnut, along with a berberine combination. And a berberine combination would contain herbs such as golden seal, Oregon grape, barberry, Chinese skullcap, ginger, and Chinese licorice root. Berberine reduces the hydrogen-producing bacteria that cause diarrhea, and it helps to overcome bacterial resistance that can be uh, inhibiting biofilm formation. After four weeks, it may be necessary to add a product that contains neem. 
This is a topical evergreen tree and it's antimicrobial. Begin with one capsule twice per day and slowly increase to three capsules per day. I have found that plasma-based colostrum and Saccharomyces or S. bullati, this is a probiotic, are both very helpful in eliminating diarrhea. I've also had great success uh, recommending Saccharomyces boulardii and a plasma-based colostrum to patients who have uh, Clostridium difficile, which is a di very difficult antibiotic-resistant uh, diarrhea. Another step that we need to focus on in this phase is to address the die-off of the bacterial overgrowth. It's important to remove these toxins that can cause die-off symptoms like gas and bloating. I recommend taking a charcoal and bentonite clay product for a few days. You can take two to four capsules per day, at least one to two hours away from food and supplements, because these binders can inhibit the absorption of your nutrients from your food and from your supplements. It's best to take a couple before going to bed. If you would like to see the specific products that I recommend in your, my office, or if you'd like a one-on-one -on -one consultation with me, please visit drgala.com. That's D-R-G-A-I-L-A.com. Just click on podcast, and I have a list of all of the uh, products that I'm going over today if you'd like to see the names of the products we recommend in the office. So let's go over one of my most challenging SIBO cases and take a look at what we were able to do to help completely resolve her issues. This 19-year-old female came in to me in April of 2018. She'd been suffering with severe SIBO symptoms for about four years. It was the worst case of SIBO I'd ever treated. She was so sick that she had to take a semester off from college. She had severe IBS SIBO symptoms. She had terrible diarrhea, severe bloating, severe pain, acid reflux, fatigue, dizziness, and she had acne. She'd had endoscopy and colonoscopy, and the doctor told her everything was fine. It was all negative. But she did test positive for SIBO with diarrhea or SIBO with the hydrogen gas. Her blood test showed severe vitamin B12 deficiency because she wasn't absorbing her B12, and this led to her fatigue. Her DNA stool test showed very high levels of several bad or dysbiotic bacteria, low levels of the good probiotic bacteria, high levels of yeast forms, and low levels of pancreatic enzymes that, of course, she needed to break down her foods and absorb her foods. She had very low levels of secretory IgAs, meaning she, her immune system was very compromised. Her allergy testing results showed allergy to several foods because she had a leaky gut or intestinal permeability, so she had undigested food particles going through that leaky gut, hitting her blood, and then her body was producing antibodies to those foods, call it causing food sensitivities. So we first recommended an anti-inflammatory diet and eliminated all of her food allergens. We gave her vitamin B12 to help correct the anemia and help restore some of her energy. We recommended the lauric acid to kill the yeast forms. We gave her a pancreatic enzyme formula to help her digestion and breakdown of her proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. And then we recommended the antimicrobials for the bad bacteria and the SIBO. We had her begin with just one half capsule of the combination I mentioned earlier, Dr. Brown's combination of the Quebracho um, with the uh, balsamia and the um, horse chestnut. 
because her die-off reaction was so severe from taking one capsule, she literally was vomiting all night from taking one capsule. I'd never seen that before. But she was willing to start again, and she took a half capsule. We slowly were able to work her up to six capsules a day. We also gave her a pla the plasma-based colostrum and the Saccharomyces boulardii to help uh, control the diarrhea. After four weeks, we added a berberine combination containing the herbs golden seal, Oregon grape, barberry, Chinese skullcap, ginger, and Chinese licorice root. Because berberine reduced the hydrogen-producing bacteria that caused diarrhea and helped to overcome bacterial resistance by inhibiting biofilm production or formation. After eight weeks, her diarrhea had completely stopped, and she had great improvement with her bloating. We added what's called a motility activator and a product to seal her leaky gut. After 12 weeks, on October 1st, 2018, she was symptom-free. All was well. Great news. She got married in December, and she went back to college in January. Okay, so let's continue on with some natural treatments for SIBO. Another issue that we mentioned that needs to be addressed is treating SIBO biofilms. The vast majority of SIBO bacteria hide out in what are called biofilms. Biofilms are created when several bacteria get together, like in a colony, and they produce sticky substances that the bacteria can cover themselves with and hide out in. This sticky substance makes them resistant to antibiotics and to antimicrobials. It's very important to break apart the biofilms so that the antimicrobials can kill the bacteria. According to the NIH, more than 80% of human bacterial infections are associated with bacterial biofilms. Biofilm disruptors usually contain several enzymes, including pectinase, glucoamylase, serapeptase, natokinase, and lumbrokinase. Enzymes such as natokinase and lumbrokinase have been used extensively as coatings on implants to fight biofilms. N-acetylcysteine is recognized as a powerful molecule against biofilms, and also lauric acid and coconut oil helps to inhibit the development of biofilms. An estimated 75% of bacterial infections involve biofilms. Step three is to restore your good probiotic bacteria and restore your peristaltic wave function. It's very important to restore the good bacteria in your gut and restore the peristaltic wave activity in your small intestine. You'll, you want to be particularly careful because some probiotics can make your symptoms worse because they can feed the, the type of bacteria that are overgrowing in your small intestine. When you have an overgrowth of bad, bad bacteria in your small intestine, it's often the lactobacillus or bifidobacteria species. The majority of probiotic supplements that you get in the store contain lactobacillus and bifidobacteria, so using them often makes your gas and bloating worse. It doesn't make these bacteria bad. You're going to eventually want to take these, but not while we're treating SIBO. Bacteria that will not overgrow in your small intestine are what are called soil-based organisms, including Saccharomyces boulardii, Bacillus subtilis, Bacillus indicus, and Bacillus coagulans. Another one is Bacillus clossi. These soil-based probiotics go straight through your small intestine 
nothing happens. They don't settle in your small intestine. They go right into your large intestine where they belong. Once you begin taking the soil-based probiotics, once you begin taking the soil-based probiotics, it's, it's important to take prokinetics to restore the peristaltic wave in your small intestine. SIBO is very difficult to eradicate. It's a chronic condition. It can take months to get rid of. Bacteria can overgrow again within two weeks of finishing treatment if the peristaltic wave called the migrating motor complex is not working effectively. A post-treatment with a natural prokinetic needs to be used to stimulate your migrating motor complex. That's that peristaltic wave that keeps everything moving through your small intestine. Failure to use an effective natural prokinetic is one of the most common reasons for relapse among SIBO sufferers. It's important that you stay on a prokinetic for a minimum of six months after your SIBO treatment, even if your symptoms have completely resolved. There are a few great options for natural prokinetics. I found that a combination of ginger root, 5-hydroxytryptophan or 5-HTP, acetyl L-carnitine works really well. 5-HTP um, is the precursor for serotonin and about 80% of your serotonin is made in your small intestine. It's good to take three capsules before bed, and if you have a severe lack of motility, take another three capsules between meals. Clove can also stimulate motility and is antibacterial. If you have symptoms of poor digestion and absorption, or your DNA stool tests reveal low levels of enzymes, you may want to take digestive enzymes to break down and absorb your carbohydrates, fats, and proteins so that your foods will assimilate before reaching your SIBO bacteria. You may also need to take hydrochloric acid capsules if you have symptoms of low stomach acid, burning, feeling of fullness, constipation, heartburn, and bloating. Hydrochloric acid is necessary to break down your proteins, kill any bacteria that's coming in on your food, and absorb your vitamins B12, calcium, magnesium, zinc, and iron. You could take lemon juice or apple cider vinegar and water before meals to stimulate your production, or you could take hydrochloric acid tablets. If you have a burning sensation when you take hydrochloric acid, lemon, or apple cider vinegar and water, you do not need to increase your acid production. After successfully eradicating SIBO bacteria and other pathogens, I recommend a broad-spectrum probiotic that contains seven probiotic bacteria and four prebiotics to restore and feed the balance of friendly bacteria in your digestive tract. Step five is to seal your gut lining. The final step is to take the nutrients that seal your gut lining and heal your leaky gut so that undigested food particles and toxins cannot enter your bloodstream because this leads to inflammation. I recommend a combination of L-glutamine L-glutamine uh, is necessary to heal your intestinal lining. It's also used to create a strong surface for digestion and absorption. Supplementing with L-glutamine is the most effective treatment to heal the gut lining for those who are suffering from leaky gut. Zinc is another really important nutrient. A study published in the Journal of Laboratory and Clinical Medicine in 2002 titled Zinc May Regulate Tight Junction Permeability found that zinc may regulate tight junction permeability with possible implications for healing processes in inflammatory bowel diseases. Collagen peptides are also very important. 
A study published in 2017 in the journal Food and Function found collagen peptides were able to prevent further breakdown of the intestinal lining and inflammatory bowel disease. DGL licorice also helps to, your body to repair your gut lining by replacing the mucus that creates a healthy intestinal barrier. Fiber and butyric acid are also important. When fiber is fermented by the bacteria in your large intestine, it creates a short-chain amino acid called butyrate. A September 2009 article in the Journal of Nutrition titled, Butyrate Enhances the Intestinal Barrier by Facilitating Tight Junction Assembly, has suggested that butyrate supplementation may stimulate mucus production and improve tight junctions in the lining of the digestive tract. If you've completed multiple rounds of antibiotics without success and do not tolerate antimicrobials, the SIBO elemental diet is another option that I frequently recommend to my patients. This liquid diet is supported by strong clinical evidence. It involves drinking powdered, predigested nutrients that are mixed with water and removing all solid foods from your diet for 14 to 21 days. Because the nutrients in this formula are absorbed so rapidly, they basically go right through the small intestine into your blood. The bacteria that are in your small intestine don't have a chance to feed on them or use them as fuel. The idea is to completely starve the bacteria of nutrients. The product that I recommend is an elemental diet that contains a balanced blend of macronutrients, essential vitamins, minerals, and electrolytes. In a study published in Digestive Diseases and Sciences, January 2004, Pimentel and staff showed that a 14-day elemental diet is highly effective in normalizing symptoms and in normalizing the lactulose breath test. Studies have shown an 80 to 85% success rate. When patients do not respond or cannot tolerate antimicrobial treatments, we always recommend an elemental diet. It's really important to be under the care of a licensed healthcare practitioner if you're going to follow an elemental diet. Let's look at the results of one of my patients who could not tolerate herbal antimicrobials and who had success from doing an elemental diet. This 21-year-old female came into my office in late April of 2019. She suffered with severe bloating, severe constipation, food allergies, hives, yeast infections, hair loss, and depression. We started her on an anti-inflammatory, anti-allergen diet and the Quabracho formula for SIBO with constipation. We also recommended both magnesium citrate and magnesium oxide. We ordered a DNA stool test that revealed several dysbiotic overgrowth bacteria, high levels of a marker indicating very poor fat breakdown and absorption, a presence of Candida albicans yeast forms, and very low levels of secretory IgAs, indicating that she had poor immune function. Because she did not tolerate the antimicrobial herbals very well, we recommended an elemental diet. She was then able to tolerate antimicrobial herbals and began a motility activator after completing 14 days on the elemental diet. She no longer has any constipation. She's able to tolerate foods that were giving her bloating, gas, and hives before, and she was able to stop her antidepressant. To wrap things up, if you have digestive problems, it's always best to test, not guess. I recommend starting out by doing a DNA stool test and a SIBO breath test. 
If you'd like to see the names of the products that we use in the office, please go to drgala.com. That's D-R-G-A-I-L-A.com and click on the title bar, Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to talking with you again soon. I hope you enjoyed the show and I hope you have a wonderful day.